This paid podcast was produced by Slate Studios in partnership with Spotify Studios. Today's episode of Showstopper is presented by Ball and the Family, an all-new show only on Facebook Watch. Head to facebook.com slash ballinthefamily to catch up and watch new episodes every Sunday. People, there was a world, a great world of art and whatever before you were born. Half these songs you listen to are samples. How many people do the research to find out what the motherfucking sample is? Find out what the motherfucking source is. From Spotify Studios, this is Showstopper, the podcast that takes you inside the playlists of your favorite TV shows and films. I'm Xavier Jernigan, head of shows and editorial for North America at Spotify. On this episode, I take you inside the soundtrack of She's Gotta Have It with one of my heroes, the legendary writer and director, Spike Lee. He's been making movies for over 30 years, and he's fearless in bringing issues of social justice and politics into storytelling. From Do the Right Thing to Mo Better Blues to Malcolm X, Spike is an American treasure. Back in 1986, he made his first feature, She's Gotta Have It, a low-budget black-and-white comedy about Nola Darling, an artist juggling three different lovers. The movie catapulted Lee's career, and three decades later, he was ready to give it an update. He turned She's Gotta Have It into a 10-episode series for Netflix. I met up with Spike to talk about adapting his first movie to the small screen. All right, what's up, y'all? This is Showstopper from 40 Acres in the Mule Studios. Well, well the world headquarters. <laughs> the world headquarters of 40 Acres in the Mule in Fort Greene, the Republic of Brooklyn, New York. Yes, yes. He brought me in his personal gallery, which brings you into Spike's world. It's a giant room filled with posters of his favorite movies, like Mean Streets and Hitchcock's Vertigo. Next to them were these incredible behind-the-scenes photos from his own career, like him as Mars Blackman with Michael Jordan. We caught up for a while, and then I asked him, how'd you start making movies? The summer 1977 came back from Morehouse, from Atlanta. New York City was broke. There were no summer jobs. And uh, I went to my friend's house. Her name is Vieta Johnson. Now she's Dr. Vieta Johnson. And there's a box in the living room. I said, what is that? She said, Super 8 camera. You can have it. That summer I had nothing to do. I didn't have a job. So now I have something to do. And now I have something to do. I have something to do in the motherfucking summer of 1977, one of the most infamous summers ever in the history of New York City. It all goes back to the heat wave of 1977. There was a huge blackout across New York City. The lights went out, and people looted stores for instruments and DJ equipment. There's a theory that this moment was the catalyst for East Coast hip-hop, and Spike was there, capturing it, turning his experiences into short-form documentaries. (laughs) It was Christmas in July. (laughs) DJs hooking up their turntables to the street lamps and their speakers. So I made a documentary. It's called Last Hustle in Brooklyn. So from that moment on, I said, short of killing somebody <laughs> and spending the rest of my life in jail, I'm going to die trying to be a filmmaker. Spike's upbringing gave him the courage and perspective he needed to become a professional artist. My father, Billy, is a great jazz composer. 
At one time, he was a top folk bassist in the world, played for Bob Dylan, Theo Piquel, Odetta, Josh White, Puff the Magic Dragon, that's my father on bass. I always forget the album. There's one album where the only instrument is Bob Dylan guitar, my father on bass. I mean, he was like the top. He was the guy. Somebody should Google that. I did Google it. That album is Bob Dylan's 1965, Bringing It All Back Home. And there, there's Spike Lee's dad, Bill Lee, the bassist, on It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. But he was the top jazz folk bassist. Wow. And then, you know, when, when Bob Dylan decided to go electric, everybody did. Right. And he took flack for it to be the first right. time he did it, too. Oh, yeah, he took yeah. tremendous flack at the, but, at the New I mean, Festival. And to this day, my father's not played any electric it was jazz or folk music, anything. It had to be acoustic, no matter what. He was not, <laughs> he had to go on welfare or whatever. Yeah. He, was, he was just not going to change off of his stance. He was a purist. Purist, no. That impacted me a lot. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't grow up wanting to be a filmmaker. But once I decided to be a filmmaker, I said that <laughs> I'm not, I can't, I could do it. But also I made a, a promise to myself that I was not going to get married or have children. That was established. I wouldn't have to make. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't have to be a pure. Right. You wouldn't have to, <laughs> I wouldn't have to do. Right. My father. A character like Nola Darling needs a theme as powerful and unique as she is. Spike knew there was only one person with the talent and skill to bring it. His dad, Bill Lee. My father did uh, just score for She's Gonna Have It. This new version on Netflix used a lot of my father's original score. What kind of direction did you give him back then for the film? Well, he would just watch the film. I cannot tell him the film has to start exactly here and end there. He wasn't writing like that. <laughs> so we just had to edit, you know, yeah. so this is it. The original film primarily used Bill Lee's melody throughout. But this series takes a different approach. It feels like we're listening to Spike's own playlist. It's a point of pride for Spike. In fact, music curated by Spike Lee is a credit we see at the top of every episode. It's the first time he's taken this much credit for the music. Why the decision now to take credit, you know, for people to know that you curate the music for your films and, and now the series? Because in the past, a lot of times people, those are the music supervisor. Sometimes you gotta let motherfuckers know. <laughs> I mean, because people forget or people don't know, and so it just it had to be clarified. And Spike wants to give credit to the people who deserve it, the musicians and performers making the work. So for the Netflix series, every time a classic song is played, before it moves on to the next scene, the album cover fills the screen, biggest day so you can't miss I it. I wanted to give love to those artists. Also, it's re-emphasizing how much music is a part of this series. Like, this ain't just like put some motherfucking shit and bullshit in the background. Each musical selection has been carefully chosen where it goes. And a lot of times, it's my opinion, that there are people who feel that if you just get a hit song, stick it somewhere, then that means that that, 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 that ain't it. Anybody get, go through Billboard and pick some songs and stick them somewhere, but that's not necessarily having music help tell the story. So what are some of your favorite album covers? Gotta go with my, my, my three Frank Sinatra albums. Uh, you Make Me Feel So Young, 
Uh, one for my... One for my baby. Yeah, one for the road and witchcraft. Sinatra has always been a key figure in Spike's Brooklyn soundscape. In Do the Right Thing, a picture of old blue eyes hangs in Sal's pizzeria. It was meant to be an homage, but he might have taken it the wrong way. Funny story, I used Jungle Fever. I used a Frank Sinatra song three times. It was a very good year. Hello, Young Lovers. I got the third film. So I knew I wanted. And so I called up Tina Sinatra, who's a dear friend of mine who's hooked me up forever. And I said, I really, I gave her the list of songs. She said, Spike, I was getting ready to call you. Uh, my father's mad at you. I said, what'd I do? You burned this picture. I said, what picture I burned? When Sal's famous pizzeria got burned down. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see him on the wall. Oh yeah, but I never heard anything from Pacino. The narrow I never said nothing. Frank Sinatra was not playing that shit. He's like, nah. So I had to I had to write like a, a ten page apology. And he let it go. Wow. True story. The series is a celebration of Brooklyn, and we hear that through Spike's musical choices. Everything from blues to hip-hop to dance hall and jazz. From a musical standpoint, what does Brooklyn sound like to you? Brooklyn is many things. Brooklyn is Barbara Streisand with the Razzles High School. Eric Copeland's Brooklyn. Jay-Z, Lena Horne, Betty Carter, Rose Depp. I mean, you saw the, you saw oh, yeah, the, 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 the scene yeah. where, we, where we put everybody's name up there. The song is called We Rep Brooklyn, and it samples a classic Spike Lee joint. It's from Do the Right Thing. It's called the We Love Roll Call. When Sam Jackson is reading all those names. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's my father's cue. And the artist, he took that, flipped it, and so it's just Brooklyn people. I said, I, I love your thing, but first of all, that's my, your sample of my father's music. <laughs> <laughs> so we can start right there. <laughs> we got to the place where I was comfortable where every song you know, was right in the pocket. Yeah. And, 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 and it was there to help tell a story. We're going to take a quick break. Calling all snack connoisseurs. This sponsorship is for you. If you're an artisanal meat and cheese lover, look no further than Hillshire Snacking Small Plates. Take your favorite bites on the go. Prosciutto and cheddar cheese, spiced salami and gouda cheese. You get the picture. Hillshire Snacking Small Plates, a snack above. Find your perfect pairing at hillshiresnacking.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Showstopper. In the first episode of She's Gotta Have It, we see a sequence where Nola Darling is harassed on the street by a cat caller. You know those dudes that holler out to get a woman's attention on the street? In response, she launches a guerrilla art campaign called Hashtag My Name Isn't. It foreshadowed the Me Too movement. All this stuff's happening now. I was this 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 is not planned. Yeah, yeah. It was not planned. I mean it was planned I wanna come out Thanksgiving, but it was not planned all this other stuff. I mean we hashtag me too, you know, and all this other stuff. We hear which a new one every day. Which is like almost co-signing what we did with the, my name isn't. Which we put out on, on social media now, which is like bananas. Yeah. It's speaking it's speaking of what's going on right now. Yeah. 
So how shocking did people find Nola's character back in 86? Well, it depends who you ask. There are people who felt that she was a liberated woman. Other people felt that, that Nola Darling was the, the same stereotypical imagery of an over, oversexed black woman. So take your pick. Well, Nola, she tells motherfuckers from the jump. <laughs> like, look, don't get no feelings. You ain't moving up in here. I'm going to see other people. I'm going to let you know that. Yeah. And if you can't give it the program, deuces. <laughs> get the bug out. Get the bug out. And keep stepping. Right. That's a gangster. So how did you like incorporate women's voices and perspectives in it? We got some great sisters. Two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, Lynn Nottage, who my mother taught at St. Anne's. Wow. Uh, my sisters wisely went to St. Anne's, yeah. too. Issa Davis, very fine playwright, Rada Blank. My wife, Tanya Lewis-Lee, she was definitely in the mix. My daughter, Satchel, was in the writer's room. The writer's room was right here. Music selection was a big part of Spike's writing process, too. The song shaped the mood of the series, and each track has a personal meaning to Spike. Martin was a man, a real man, by the late, great Oliver Nelson. In fact, I've always loved that specific piece of music. When I went to Morehouse, I had my own radio show at WCLK, which was Clark's rail station. It was a jazz station. Yeah. So that's where I first discovered that album, so... A lot of songs I've heard over the years where I just keep in the back of my head. I say, you know what? I'm just going to wait, lay in the cut, and that time's going to come and say, boom. I just noticed it seemed like every week something was dying. It was like bananas. So I said, you know, we have to pay tribute to these people. And I've been to Greenwood Cemetery before. I was just amazed at all the people there. As Martin Was a Man plays... We watch Nola on a pilgrimage to several New York cemeteries. She goes around placing roses on her heroes' graves. Icons like James Baldwin, Malcolm X, and Basquiat. I got an Instagram note that this person said that it made that person Google. This person wanted to know who are these people. This person must have been very special for Nola Darling to lay a rose at this person's grave. That's yeah. that's moving forward. That's what it is. And when you move forward, you got to bring stuff. Yes, shit that was here before you were born. Yes. Culture not just begin the day you arrived in this earth. Don't sleep. I'll use your word. Get woke. Your terminology. <laughs> Spike was editing the series during the 2016 election, and he felt obligated to comment. There was only one musician he could trust to capture his anxiety, Stu. I knew the night that this guy got in the White House, I knew I needed a song from Stu. So, because he's a great songwriter, a wordsmith. I said, I need a song. I had the title, The Clown with the Nuclear Code. And there's a story behind that. My wife and I, Tyne, gave a benefit of Barack at our house. And I step outside and the president's 44's car is there. And there's a guy sitting in there. 
and next to him was an attache case. So I looked at him, looks at me, I point at the attache case, he goes, he nodded up and down. That, there's a term that they call that the football. I thought it was bullshit. I heard about it. Right. This myth. That, yeah. ain't, that, that shit is 100% real. That's scary. And, and yes, it is. Isn't it more scary knowing this, that, knowing, knowing this now that who is yes. as a nuclear code? Absolutely. There's this theory that they gave him the fake one. I hope it's true. <laughs> there's no way where we could do 10 episodes and not acknowledge what happened. The world changed. And these changes go far beyond national politics. Gentrification has transformed Brooklyn. In episode nine, Nola tries to break up a fight. It's between a brownstone owner and a street artist who lives out of a shopping cart. Things get heated, the cops show up, and Nola gets arrested. People try to play hard and whatnot, but when you get locked up overnight, that shit's no joke. No, it is not fun. I don't want to end it with her just being hugged. My parents, that's a little too corny. Nola gets bailed out, but she can't shake what happened. She returns home to her empty apartment, and Michelle and Deggio Cello's faithful starts playing. The situation's stress and anger overwhelm her, and the song lyrics appear on screen. The words literally fly out of her mouth. And it comes this instrumental part that says, scream there. And in post-production, I got the deal to have those words go on the screen. Then I got the deal when she screamed the words, some, some keywords come out of her mouth like she's vomiting. Behind closed doors, you know, she's still vulnerable. On one of the show's most talked about subplots, Nola's best friend Shemeca has a crazy scheme to get butt implants so she can dance on stage and make more money for her and her daughter. What is it about these women, what they receive from the world, that their self-love is so little that they feel a big butt it's going to make them feel better about themselves and make them feel loved. That's what we're talking about. Now, when I wrote that, no one knew about the song Save Yourself, but I heard it. I knew that's where that song's going. I've always been about introducing new talent in front of and behind the camera. With, with this film, I've used my social media to put a call out for unsigned artists to submit songs to be considered for She's Gotta Have It. So the first time I heard that song, I had to get a number. Mm. I said, do you know what you've written? But in the room, this rise room, there was resistance about uh, the butt implants. And we were not trying to make it Comical. I think people get comedy mixed with satire. And as I try to explain to people in Chirac, you can use satire to deal with serious issues. In the season finale, Nola, unbeknownst to her booze, invites all three of them over to her place for Thanksgiving dinner. Spike used the opportunity to pay his respects to an artist he loves, Prince. What type of woman would invite her three lovers to a home-cooked Thanksgiving meal. So I said, not only is this going to be a Thanksgiving dinner, but it's also going to be a homage. Think about it. Everybody's wearing purple. Yep. I mean, Greer goes all the way. 
That was hilarious. The outfit. The the uh, the. Uh, the guitars that were sitting yeah. on the table. Yeah. When she's cooking the meal, she's wearing the 1999 shirt. Yep. Mars brings over the the, the album. The, the Prince album. The actual dance number. The dance, which the, the majority of the choreography is from the from the, the video. Nola throws on Raspberry Beret. They dance around her apartment, rocking moves just like the revolution in the original video. So why Raspberry Beret in the last? Why the choice of that song? Versus, you know, his catalog is... I mean, it could have been a lot of songs. Yeah. But uh, that's a special one for me. Then, we cut to the Prince album. Then that great portrait of him, when he's like 18 years old. Yeah. You said you told me that was a hard-to-find photo, right? No, and there, there, the book is coming out never been published before. Wow. The Prince Spike connection runs deep, and that's what's so dope about the She's Gotta Have It series. Spike's connection with the music is complex. He's a super fan and a collaborator. Spike directed the Money Don't Matter Tonight video, and Prince scored Girl 6. When Prince died, Spike organized a major block party in Brooklyn to send him off properly. I was there myself, dancing with fans young and old from the neighborhood. It was a beautiful day, not a cloud in the sky. The DJ put the needle on the vinyl for Purple Rain and the Star of the Rain. That was, that was our brother. Yeah. I don't, I don't give what anybody says. Yeah. That was him. Yeah. I'll put my hand, my right hand, on 10 Bibles. That shit happens. It did. Spike, thank you for your time, All brother. Right. Thank you. Appreciate thank you, you, man. To hear music from this episode and more, check out the official She's Gotta Have It playlist right here on Spotify. And check out our exclusive character playlist curated by the actors themselves who played every main character in the show. That includes Nola Darling, Anthony Ramos as Mars Blackman, Jamie Overstreet, every single one, Fat Joe. Check it out. It's exclusive to Spotify. You can only hear it here. Showstopper is produced by Spotify Studios in collaboration with Slate Studios. Production by Fanny Cohen. Our producers are Fanny Cohen and Morgan Hecht. Special thanks to Natalie Tulla, Leah Campbell, Sharon Wong, and Michelle Siegel. Our theme song is produced by my homie, Prince Maestro. From Spotify, I'm Xavier Jernigan. Keep listening. Today's episode of Showstopper is presented by the Army National Guard. Discover how you can make a difference in your community and country by visiting goarmy.com slash armyguard and discover more episodes of Showstopper only on Spotify. Thanks for listening to Showstopper.